Namo dasa bhagavato arahato summa sambuddhasa Namo dasa bhagavato arahato summa sambuddhasa Namo dasa bhagavato arahato summa sambuddhasa Buddhang dhammang sanghang namasami Welcome to this last of the Sunday afternoon talks for 2017. October has come already. And so uh, the, uh, the theme for this afternoon's talk is the blue pill or the red pill. Why wake up when my habits are so pleasant? So uh, for some of you that will be a very obscure title. For others uh, who've seen the film The Matrix, or at least uh, heard of it, then that will make a bit more sense. Uh, in the um, this science fiction film of a number of years ago called The Matrix, the, um, the plot revolves around a hero who's called Neo, uh, <coughs> discovering that uh, uh, rather than life being a... a uh, uh, say a situation of uh, free will and um, independence and uh, enjoyment that uh, <coughs> the the discovery is that uh, that's just the appearance of things and so that uh, he uh, discovers that the uh, uh, the life that he thinks he's uh, leading is an illusion and that in fact his body is kept in a little uh, kind of plastic pod like all other human beings are all in little plastic pods uh, suspended in fluid covered, uh, surrounded by pipes and wires and the the mental energy that they produce in their little flotation tank is what's um, powering the the great artificial intelligence that's now running the planet but uh, <coughs> the um, the matrix is the, the computer program that runs speed and to organize the collective illusion. So the, all of us living beings who are in their little flotation tanks, they all assume they are driving to work and chatting with their family and having breakfast and going to the library meeting and, and uh, having a good old time. Uh, and um, life is, uh, is uh, comfortable, um, uh, predictable, and uh, reliably pleasant. So that it becomes revealed to the hero along the way that um, this is an illusion. And, uh, <coughs> and then the mentor, whose name is Morpheus, then presents the, the hero, Neo, with a, with a, a choice. So the, the blue pill and the red pill. If you take the blue pill, it means your mind will continue to be uh, absorbed in the delusion. You'll, you'll uh, carry on. Uh, somewhat happily with your delusion of uh, having free will being able to walk around do your thing and <coughs> live your uh, your life in its deluded state if you take the red pill you'll wake up to what's actually been happening so then uh, 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 not to spoil the film for everybody but I'll tell you <laughs> the uh, so he takes the red pill and then realizes oh my goodness 
I spent my whole life in this little flotation tank. I've never actually been anywhere and just suspended in fluids, surrounded by wires, and the whole of my life, the idea of being a, uh, an independent person, making choices, and doing what I like, has been totally uh, delusory. It's all been an illusion. So the, uh, this has become a, a sort of a metaphor in our, in our culture of do you take the blue pill and stay asleep or do you take the wet red pill? Uh, there's this very um, impactful moment. I haven't seen the, the film for a long, long time. I think I last saw it when I was still living in the, the USA uh, at the, one of our monastery film nights. Once a year we'd have a film night. Dummically informative uh, films for the community. So the, the Matrix is one of those, uh, so the, like Star Wars, is considered filled with uh, all sorts of useful and uh, symbolic meaning. And so when the hero wakes up from the delusion, it kind of breaks free of the influence of the Matrix, and then the, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, his mentor introduces introduces him to the the world as it actually is. It's pretty grim. Yeah, even if he's outside the flotation tank, it's still a, a kind of desolate, post-apocalyptic world run by an artificial intelligence, so it's pretty nasty. And then his mentor, there's of course this little enclave, little group of, of noble warriors are sort of battling the evil empire of the artificial intelligence. They're trying to say, be the, the torch bearers for freedom. But his mentor at that moment of him um, waking up to where, uh, where he is and how life actually is, his mentor says to him, Welcome to the desert of the real. Welcome, not the dessert. One S, not two. Welcome to the desert of the real. So it's a bit of a shock, but uh, it's also reality. So it's, uh, uh, I feel this is, there's a useful message in this. And the question that's there in the title of the talk, blue pill or red pill? Do we want to uh, carry on in our deluded um, state based on our habits of, of self-view and um, our opinions, our preferences, uh, our familiar way of, of seeing ourselves in the world? Or do we want to wake up? Do we want to... Uh, uh, and try uh, try out uh, through the uh, the eyes, seeing eyes through the uh, life through the eyes of Dhamma, to uh, make our way through the desert of the real. So it's a, I feel it's a, this is a kind of question that many of us face during the course of a day. Do I choose to buy into my uh, self-centered views, my my opinions, my habits, or do I choose to take a different perspective? Do I choose to to let go of those. You know, the Buddha said, uh, as I often quote, the, the Buddha said, uh, uh, when he's talking about the world, what is the world? That, the, uh, that in the world whereby one is a perceiver of the world and a conceiver of the world, that is the world in this Dhamma and discipline. So the world is, in, in this respect, is not, say, the, 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 uh, the planet or the physical universe so much as our perception of the world. And as he points out in that teaching, what is it whereby one is a perceiver of the world and a conceiver of the world? The eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, the mind. That is the means whereby one is a perceiver of the world, a conceiver of the world. So the world 
is the world of our own experience. So if you've got a really effective blue pill, then you can stay completely wrapped in your little bubble of uh, your own rightness, your own preferences, your own opinions, and, uh, and that's what we try to do. We try to surround ourselves and sustain the world according to our own, uh, our own preferences, so that we're always comfortable, we're always, uh, say, uh, protected, we're always fully supplied with all the things that we like, with the people that we like, we never have to deal with anything difficult or unwanted, which of course is kind of impossible, but we keep trying for that, we keep trying to set our life up so that we'll have, uh, never have any difficult or painful situations, we'll never have to be with any problematic or uh, unpleasant people, we'll never have to deal with, with pain or, or loss or um, any of our faculties uh, disappearing, that we, we'll be able to see, hear, and smell, taste, touch, think uh, completely as we would wish to, completely and smoothly and accurately. We'll, uh, we'll never have any unwanted emotions like worry, or fear or, or, or anger, we'll always be, um, say, uh, living in a completely um, clear, benign, happy state. We wish. <laughs> so that's the, uh, the the kind of dream of the of the blue pill. So uh, we, um, as it's in the, the title of the talk, why wake up when my habits are so pleasant? You know, uh, as long as those habits can be fed as long as we've got a good supply of our drug of choice, whether it's social approval, whether it's uh, interesting TV programs, whether it's uh, uh, perfect medical treatment, whether it's uh, uh, alcohol or, or, uh, or um, prescription drugs that make us feel comfortable all the time, uh, whatever it might be, whether it's a socially approved of drug or, or not approved of, as long, uh, that's what so much of our life and, and our society is based upon is sort of keeping the supply of um, uh, say blue pills uh, so that we will be able to sustain that, sense, uh, in that illusion of comfortable independent uh, free existence to, to make us feel content and, and happy all the time so that uh, looking at this reflecting on this theme the uh, the ways that we we uh, habitually or as a culture as a society I'm not making any judgments about anybody here um, probably this is the kind of people who come and spend a Sunday afternoon at a Buddhist monastery are probably the more restrained and abstemious end of society we're not all at the pub or, or the boxing matches or the football or, uh, in the in the uh, um, in the drug dens but uh, <coughs> The way we, we choose to say keep that keep the mind uh, in a um, of a uh, say self-centered bubble. Um, we we uh, say feed ourselves with distractions. So uh, television, uh, films, music, uh, the internet, just a constant stream of things that we like, things that are interesting, things that are say captivating our attention. So we seek distraction. Uh, drugs and alcohol, um, many of us have spent a lot of time drinking and using drugs to, sort of, uh, as they say, as mood adjusters, uh, adjusting our mood uh, so that we, uh, we feel good, quote unquote, feeling good, and so that uh, the, the, um, the amount of uh, the time we spend 
say, getting drunk enough or have enough painkillers or, or, uh, or tranquilizers or, or um, uh, antidepressants that just make us feel comfortable, good, alert, enough. <laughs> it's it's a, hu a huge industry. I'm not making fun of anyone's um, mental illnesses at all, but just recognizing this is how we are as a, as a culture, that we, we spend a lot of, of, of time and effort and money consuming things to bring that kind of uh, sense of <coughs> at least temporary contentment and, and happiness and well-being. Uh, so we uh, uh, drugs and alcohol, distraction. We like to believe in our opinions. <coughs> we like to absorb into our, our own ideas and often um, say uh, believing in my worldview and absorbing into how I see things and then criticizing others who think differently. That's also a very uh, major occupation as a way we keep our bubble really you know, tightly enclosed. We, the, my rightness and then how many of us either ourselves or at least the people in our family or amongst our friends and, or people that we work with that uh, we're around people who continually uh, criticize the world, praising this, criticizing that, sort of making a, a, a kind of fence, forming that, that bubble uh, of their own feelings of, of rightness, judging the world, uh, this is good, that's bad, this is right, that's wrong, I approve of this, I disapprove of that. So we absorb into our, our opinions. Uh, also um, related to that is our reason. We, ha we come up with explanations of why we feel what we do. We kind of get a sense of, of comfort or reassurance through being able to ex explain everything, telling ourselves, this is why I feel this, this is why I feel that. We, we use our intellect to create that, uh, that environment of, of comfort, or try to. So uh, the problem is that, at least in my experience, is none of this really works. <laughs> And that uh, you can never quite take enough of the drug, uh, uh, you can never quite drink enough to feel perfectly good all the time. Uh, and then it becomes socially unacceptable, you're not allowed to drive or you cause accidents or people, uh, your friends tell you, why are you drinking so much? Yeah. I've had this experience myself many, many years ago when uh, at uh, a Tuesday lunchtime at the local pub, uh, just the three of us, only three of us in the pub, uh, this was before, uh, this was before I, was I should add that. <laughs> this was, um, I think this was the spring of 1977, around then. And there was only three of us in the pub, and this friend of mine, who was quite, uh, quite the party animal, she was uh, by far the most sort of extreme extrovert and, and um, unrestrained character in our local area. And she's actually the one who pierced my ear many years ago. So <clears throat> she was introducing me to this friend of hers and we were, uh, who was uh, an engineer and uh, we were having this fascinating conversation about uh, him and uh, a friend of his who he'd known for a long time who lived as a, a hermit up in the hills in the north of England. And uh, about an hour, hour and a half into this conversation, this friend of mine said, why are you drinking so much? And I said, what do you mean? She said, well, you're, you're on your eighth pint. And it, and it's, it's only you know, 12 o'clock, we're just, just the three of us, it's not like we're in the middle of a party. You know, why are you drinking so much? Because I want to. <laughs> yeah, I feel like it. And then she just said to me, what are you afraid of? And that, that really hit me. Um, because, uh, of course, I, was, I took refuge in explaining. 
self-justification. Um, but uh, it was it was uh, a um, uh, a wake-up call for me, in a way. Again, in, in the theme of today's talk, that uh, I had become unconscious of how I was just drinking all the time to to make myself feel okay, even when the situation didn't really call for it. There's three of us in a pub; it wasn't even known, <laughs> and uh, I was already on my eighth pint. It's a true story. <laughs> so uh, <clears throat> we get the feedback from the people around us, and or that the we can't uh, drink enough to feel good. We can't stay distracted enough. We get bored. We spend so many hours looking at uh, websites on the internet, or so many hours watching TV. So many. Um, you know, how many cruises can you go on? You know, how many holidays? How many home improvements can you make? Until it just. Eh. Changed the changed the curtains four times this year already, you know. <laughs> I'm still not happy. <laughs> We're on our fifth cruise and it's, it's still in August. Yeah, you know where next? And uh, something gets gets bored, gets tired, can't be satisfied. You can't get to that that good place. Uh, it's not sustainable. So this is uh, something that uh, is really worthy of consideration. So mostly what we try and do is up the consumption of the blue pills. <laughs> but I'm not trying hard enough. I need a bigger TV. That's why it's, it's not the it's not the programs. It's I need a I need a bigger screen. You know, I need better sound system. I need uh, yeah, more comprehensive. I need faster broadband. Yeah, if I did, if it was just uh, had a a higher speed uh, internet then I'd be fine. I'd be happy. But we keep increasing the dose. We keep uh, say uh, increasing the consumption and it's never quite enough. Yeah, many years ago, I did a, a, a university degree in, in physiology and psychology, and one of the, the books that we studied uh, is called The Physiology of Excitable Cells, which might sound very interesting, but it was a really challengingly boring book. <laughs> but it was uh, the content was really very, very interesting, because an excitable cell is like the the cells of the eye or the ear, the tongue, the nose, the, the, the cells of the senses that produce an electric current that uh, can be stimulated. So the, the, the cells in the ear that, that help enable us to hear or the cells in the eye, like the rods and the cones in the eye that enable us to see. So an excitable cell, when it, say when light hits the, the cells at the back of the eye, they produce an electric current and that goes down the optic nerve. Well, if you have a bright light... Um, uh, I'm sure there's a few doctors here who'll correct me, but never mind. <laughs> if a bright light, the initial impact of that bright light uh, landing on those cells, it sends a big charge. But then the cell, the excitable cell, adjusts so that a, a bright light, first of all, will send a big uh, charge down the nerve, but then the cell adjusts because if the light stays strong, it says, okay, um, we don't need to keep sending a, such a strong signal, and it adjusts. So that brightness becomes ordinary. So uh, no matter how strong the signal gets, the system will keep adjusting to, to make it ordinary, to make it normal. So that the stronger the taste, the louder the noise, the more uh, variety there is in the flavor, no matter how strong or varied or intense or uh, impactful it is, the system will always adjust to make it ordinary. So our, our uh, neurophysiology is rigged for us to be bored. So that change is what is interesting. So then similarly, the, and the, the cell will keep, will keep adjusting until it gets such a strong stimulus that it'll actually break down, like the light is too bright, it'll just destroy the cell. 
or it goes down to the lower limit, the more and more subtle stimulus until uh, it's below the level of, uh, of any, Im any impact being made. So our whole system keeps adjusting so that anything that we experience through the senses ev uh, eventually becomes ordinary. So that's why we get bored. So the, um, uh, <clears throat> when we experience this, you know, our first reaction is maybe just to get a bigger screen or <laughs> go to a different pub or to uh, find a different partner, go to a different ajan, you know. yeah. replay, the, replay the Sunday talks that you really enjoyed so you can go back and live them again. Not, I'm not making fun of that. I mean, this is what we do. We just keep going back to the same stimulation to get that feeling once more. So we can do that, but then there's also that feeling in the heart of being dissatisfied. It's not quite enough. It's not quite right. It's not quite there. I'm not quite free. It's not, I'm not quite content. And uh, again, going back to my, my sort of, uh, partying days before I was uh, a monk, um, I used to feel quite, I was reflecting on this, thinking about this, this talk, and I was reflecting how when I was a teenager, I used to feel really jealous of the friends of mine who could get really completely lost in their moods or their feelings. They could get really happily carried away. And, and uh, I used to feel, I wish I could just sort of switch off like them. Why do I keep thinking about things all the time? <laughs> I, just, I, would keep, I would see that in, in the middle of some kind of, um, uh, you know, a party or some kind of uh, adventure. I say, well, why is this interesting? Why are we doing this? Or what's the point of this? And uh, the uh, which was a you know, question arising in my mind, like, well, why, why, you know, why do we spend time doing this? Or why is this supposed to be fun? <laughs> and then the, my friends would look at me like, idiot, or you know, what kind of a moron are you? Or get another round in, you know, buy another round and just to, just keep going. That would be the the, the response, but I, I so I used to uh, as I was recollecting this, I used to actually feel jealous. Like if I could just be kind of brainless, like my friends, that would be great. Again, I'm not trying to put them down, but it, that was the feeling that arose at the time. Like, oh, I wish I could just be sort of wonderfully insensitive as my you know, dear mates. <laughs> not all of them, but but some of them, because uh, my mind kept I mean, asking these kind of questions, like, well. Why isn't this enough? Or why do, why do we keep having to do more? Or you know, why why is there always this this hungering? So the um, this is in a way it brings us to the question of you know, why why wake up when our habits are so pleasant? Uh, essentially, because that pleasantness uh, is only one kind of happiness. That's one kind of happiness is getting what you want. That's a uh, in whatever kind of dimension, it might be that getting what you want is a Nobel Peace Prize, you know, very, very appropriate, beautiful thing. Uh, and so, but what you want might just be to, to feel content, to feel approved of, to feel happy, to feel comfortable, uh, yeah, whatever it might be. So that kind of happiness is the happiness of getting what you want. So it is a kind of happiness, but it's a very shallow kind of happiness. So the Buddha said this is, this is a kind of, of um, pleasure, but it's a, a very coarse kind of pleasure. And there, there is another kind of happiness that we can experience, which is uh, far superior to that, you know, which is the, essentially the happiness of not craving anything, the happiness of, of contentment, you know, the happiness of the heart, you know, free 
from craving the 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 the, uh, the heart that has awakened to to reality. So that's a very different kind of happiness. There's a a, a significant sutta in the um, middle length discourses called the Magandhya Sutta, and the Buddha is talking to this layman called Magandhya, and uh, Magandhya is quite a, a sensualist. He can't understand this renunciation thing. You know, he he likes his food. He likes drink. He likes fine clothes. He like he enjoys things. He's, he's a he's a has a love for the sensual world, and so he can't understand why anyone in their right mind would want to give up any any kind of sense pleasure. It just doesn't make sense to him. Why would you deny yourself things that are fun that are enjoyable? And so he's having this dialogue with the Buddha, and you know the Buddha is a celibate monk. You know he's he's a a, a renunciant. You're walking around northeast India barefoot for 45 years. So Magandhi, I can't understand what. Wh- why would you give up with so much um, happiness, so much pleasure when life has got so much to offer? You know what? What benefits you see in that? And then the, it's a very lo- lovely little dialogue because the Buddha doesn't sort of put him down or, or um, criticize him. He says, Magandhi. So what do you think, Magandhi? If um, after this lifetime you were reborn in the Tavatinsa heaven, one of the heavenly realms. And you were a deva prince living in the Nandana grove. And you had a retinue of 500 beautiful nymphs, celestial maidens that were your, your harem up in the heavenly realm. And there you are in the Nandana grove with these 500 dove-footed nymphs. doesn't mean they had feet like bird's claws, but uh, I think it, it means sort of delicate and uh, uh, dainty dainty-footed celestial nymphs. So if there, if there you are in the Tavatings of Heaven, uh, you know, a deva with 500 nymphs in, uh, in your, your harem, um, uh, would you be interested in the life that you have here as a, as a human being down in the world? You're living here, running your business and, and you know, taking care of your family life. Would you be interested in that? Well, no, I wouldn't be interested at all. I mean, up in the Tavatinsa heaven with 500 celestial nymphs to keep me company, well, you know, why, you know, why would I be interested in, in worldly happiness when what I can experience in the Tavatinsa heaven is so vastly, you know, immeasurably more pleasant, more delightful, more, uh, more satisfying? And the Buddha said, so exactly, exactly so, Magandhya. It's not that I, I uh, say... Uh, disregard or dismiss the worldly pleasure as, um, uh, in its own right. But it's I know a pleasure that is so far beyond that. It's as far beyond and above the pleasure of a deva in the the Nandana grove as that the the pleasure of that, that deva is above the the happiness of worldly life in the in the human realm. So. It, you know, it's not that I despise that pleasure or I hate it or I fear it. It's just it's just not interesting to me because I know a pleasure that is far greater, far more profound, far more comprehensive. So it's just not interesting. It's like I got far more channels than you have already. Yeah, you got one. You got you got one black and white channel on your TV, and I got five hundred. You know, full color uh, with a uh, a five foot screen. I'm just uh, elaborating. You know, the Buddha didn't say it. I put it that way, but just using a modern day example, it's like, why would you be jealous of somebody with a, with a small black and white TV with one channel when you've got a TV with five hundred channels and a five foot screen? It's like, it just wouldn't wouldn't be interesting because what you what you have available to you is is far more interesting, far more pleasing, far more satisfying. 
So this is, in a sense, this is the red pill. <laughs> this is where we get to the red pill, is uh, uh, how do we discover that kind of happiness that is, um, say, so much more profound, so much more complete. And, and essentially, the reason why it's, it's so much, uh, uh, I say, uh, so superior is because it's a happiness that's independent of circumstances where the kind of happiness of getting what you want depends on um, getting a supply of the things that you like and having the right environment to experience it and having the right people with you or the right physiology. You know, If you, uh, someone can, can uh, cook you the most uh, delicious meal of your favorite foods, but if you're feeling sick, they, can, they put it on the table in front of you and you go, ooh, it's exactly what you like. It's your favorite things. They did it specially for you, but you take one look and you go, ooh. Sorry, I can't. I can't even look at it. So, uh, uh, again, um, just as using a personal story, uh, a few years ago, Ajahn Pasno and I were um, uh, were g- getting a uh, a checkup at uh, Simitiwate Hospital in in Bangkok, and um, they were they were doing like a full scale checkup because uh, just as a sort of uh, regular um, uh, so medical review, just to see how we were. And both of us reacted to some of the medicine that they gave us. So we were having the tests through the morning, and then they laid on this, this meal offering at the hospital. And it was like you know, half the floor was covered with all these kind of delicious you know, uh, foods. They've obviously spent a huge amount of time and care and effort preparing. And um, literally, he, he couldn't even look at it. I took one look, and I had to literally run for the bathroom before I kind of vomit, like projectile vomiting experience sorry to disturb everybody <laughs> but it was it was the last time i really threw up it was a, it was it was a, in a dramatic way it was a, this one this the smell of uh, the sight of this gl- glorious and delicious food that was offered with great sincerity and kindness like <laughs> literally i had to run you know, monks don't run <laughs> nuns don't either we monastics we we process <laughs> we don't run but I ran <laughs> to get to the bathroom before I could have had this projectile vomiting experience. So uh, the, the, the deliciousness of the food or the beauty of the object or the, the delightfulness of the sound is, is dependent. Whereas the kind of happiness that comes from taking the red pill, the happiness that comes from waking up is, is of a whole different order. It's not dependent on the senses. It's not dependent on... Um, our conditioning. So the um, the uh, the means whereby uh, we wake up, or how the Buddha uh, say encourages this, is is uh, ma- there are many and various ways that he talks about in the scriptures and, and uses. But uh, a lot of it hinges around breaking ourselves free of the habits that we have of you know, looking for security in say what we look like um, wanting to be sort of um, young and attractive wanting to look um, say appealing to others wanting to always be comfortable wanting to you know to never be sick never to grow old never to lose anybody that we love these never to lose anything that we love um, so that uh, what, what he uh, called the five subjects for frequent recollection is uh, the most uh, so common and accessible way of uh, recognizing those habits. We, we try to um, 
take refuge and, and depend upon things that are undependable. We take refuge, we try to find security in things which are insecure. We try to find satisfaction in things that cannot satisfy. So, like, for example, um, uh, I'm not sure of, the, of, of these statistics, but I have heard that the cosmetic industry is a $700 billion a year industry worldwide. $700 billion. Of course, it's only about 500 million pounds. Had 500 billion pounds. It's, you know, pounds are worth a bit more than dollars, but still, that's a lot of money. <laughs> for cosmetics, for how we look. Just... Uh, 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 cosmetic surgery, uh, similarly, you know, huge, huge amounts of, of money are spent to create an impression on, on, on others and how we will how we will look. Um, the uh, uh, the amount of, of time and, and effort that uh, and anxiety is spent. Uh, obviously, we uh, we look after our bodies and take care of our health in in sensible and practical ways. But how many of us spend huge amounts of our, of our day worrying about ailments that we have, ailments that we might have, ailments, illnesses and ailments that we have had and why they're going to come back again or, or that we might have in the future? Uh, again, I'm not, I'm not saying that we shouldn't visit doctors and, or take care of ourselves. Uh, I'm very appreciative of the, what good health I have. <laughs> but... Uh, just to, to consider the amount of, of anxiety we experience, the, the amount of, of, um, of time and effort that uh, is spent worrying about illness, trying to uh, avoid it, fearing that it's going to happen, and, and uh, worrying what certain sensations might mean, and such like. So the five subjects for frequent recollection that the Buddha encourages us as, as individuals to pick up and explore every day are, I am of the nature to age, I have not gone beyond aging. I am of the nature to sicken, I have not gone beyond sickness. I am of the nature to die, I have not gone beyond dying. All that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise, will become separated from me. I am the owner of my karma, heir to my karma, born of my karma, related to my karma, abide supported by my karma. Whatever karma I shall do, for good or for ill, of that I will be the heir. So, uh, as uh, whenever this comes up, you ha I, I find myself making it a kind of, um, not exactly a disclaimer, but uh, a reassurance that the Buddha was very compassionate. He was not a sadist. He was not, he was not kind of making fun of us or, or, or making, trying to make us feel bad or depressed. Because from a, a self-centered perspective, say, you know, <clears throat> you're, you're aging, you're going you're, you're to get sick and you're going to die. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> it's not that, <laughs> that kind of attitude at all. It's a, it's a waking up from the, the, the delusion, the little bubble of self-view, hoping that we're never going to get old, hoping that we're never going to get sick, hoping that we're never going to die. Like I frequently do this as a little exercise. So just consider for a moment, every single human being in this sala, in this hall, every single one of these bodies is going to die one day. Every single one, 100%. No exceptions. Anyone got the different versions of reality? None of us get off this boat alive. Right? Regardless of how old we are, or how young we are, that's a fact. So why is something in us surprised when, that, when we hear that? Again, I'm not reading anybody's mind, but 
at least if your mind is anything like mine, when I say, yeah, everybody in this room is going to die, like, something goes, wait a minute, that, that can't be quite right. What is it that's saying that's not, that can't be right? What is it that's surprised when we get ill? That um, we, um, when we get a cold, or we, get an, we, we uh, have some kind of illness. What, it, uh, what is surprised and feels it shouldn't be this way, or something's gone wrong, or life's being unfair? Isn't it weird that we feel something's gone wrong when the body gets sick? Isn't it? And why do we feel sad when we look in the mirror and there's a few more wrinkles and a few less hairs? Or more hairs in the wrong places, you know? <laughs> the, what, what, feels, what, what feels wrong about that? Why is that saddening? Isn't that strange? Because our, the conditioning is, uh, from self-view, is uh, I have the right to... to uh, Never get old, never get sick, and never die. That's the, the, the delusion of self-view. That's like a, a childlike attitude. And all the things that are mine, none of them should ever leave unless I want to get rid of them. And then they should be gone now. If, if things are mine, they should stay mine, always, and be exactly the way I like them. That's the way it should be. That's a, that's a kind of five-year-old child's, or maybe a three-year-old, <laughs> three-year-old child's vision of the world. But yet it affects us, even us as sort of supposedly mature adults. But I would say that's the effect of the blue pill, you know, the, 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 uh, the kind of bubble of self-view that creates that and, and is desperately trying to make it so that I never lose anything that I love, all the things that are mine I keep. Um, I don't get old, I don't get sick, I don't die. You know, if we look at the advertisements, unless it's an advertisement for... Um, for a retirement plan or a stairlift, you know, everybody in the adverts is 23 and cheerful and good-looking. Yeah. Even the advertisements for for funeral for like undertakers, you know, the coffins look really smart. You know. Whereas Ajahn Sajito pointed out that even when even when you're in your coffin, the, the, you get dressed up as if you're going to a dance. You know, they they put you in a in a, in a dress or a suit that you never would have worn in your, while you were alive. But people quite often, they really look much better in the coffin than they ever did in real life. <laughs> That's pretty weird. It's pretty weird. So when we have people lying in, in, the, in the chapel of rest here, when the people ask for their, their bodies to be kept after they've died, to be kept in the temple, then we have no refrigeration. <laughs> Just the windows, you know, we open the windows. But the bodies change according to their nature so that... It, you know, if you if if you die and your body is there in the chapel of rest for five days or a week, then it, it becomes a a food source for the uh, you know other creatures and mold and and the the, the organic uh, nature of change of a of a human body is is going to be um, taking place. It's not sort of preserved or or, or frozen into a, an idealized form. So these reflections are the five subjects for frequent recollection. These help us to challenge that the, the, the habits of imprisoning ourselves because it's really, uh, it's nobody but us uh, as individuals who are keeping us in that bubble. We don't have to, to stay in that bubble. And that uh, once we recognize, yes, it's good to wake up and yes, it's good to, to break free of the bubble, then... Uh, <clears throat> When we hear those words, I'm of the nature to age, I'm of the nature to sick, and I'm of the nature to die, 
that is challenging to our self-view. That that in the mind that goes in your mind when I said you know, we're all gonna everyone in this hall, these bodies are all gonna die one day. That which says, but 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 can we negotiate? <laughs> let's let's talk about that. Yeah. Uh, that um, it's important to recognize, yeah, the, the habits of self-view are daunted. Right? Welcome to the desert of the real. It's a desert. It's a desert to the ego. It's a, it's not what you, the ego wants to hear. You know, you're getting older. Yeah, you're you're getting more wrinkles. You know, the, everything is heading south. In my experience, unless you're you're uh, still growing, there's a, a few smaller ones here that are not finished their growing yet. But eventually, even the, those who are small now, will, everything will head south. <laughs> that. Uh, when uh, we are, um, say, able to recognize that, yeah, that's painful to the ego, but it's simultaneously, it's freeing to the heart. That as long as our view is based on, on I and me and mine, then we're setting ourselves up for loss and, and depression and sadness when those changes occur, when things that, that we love go. But if we, uh, if instead we take refuge in wisdom, that the refuge is in, in Dhamma, in reality, in nature, rather than in self-view, then as those changes occur, then we're ready for them. It's like, oh, there goes another one. <laughs> yeah, I used to be able to rem remember people's names, and now his name is, it'll come to me. You know? <laughs> it's gone. You know, the, we, we can't remember where we put our shoes. Mine are by that door over there. I remember that much. I came in that door. We can't remember people's names. We uh, things erode. If we are wise and we recognize, oh, there goes another one. Um, and it's not experienced as a sense of diminution. We're not diminished, as it says in a, in an old poem. When when were you ever made any the less by dying? When were you ever made any the less by dying? Things come, things go. Yeah. What, what's that got to do with anything fundamentally real? So that the um, when the the heart meets the uh, the experience of change and uncertainty, then it experiences freedom. The experience is one of freedom and wonderment, uh, rather than fear. Uh, in the one of the Upanishads, um, I think it's the Brihad Aranyika Upanishad begins with a, a little passage where. Roughly, it says something like, um, originally there was the mind of the absolute filling the infinite void. And in the mind of the absolute there arose the thought, I am. With the thought, I am, there arose fear. And with fear there arose desire. So that's cast in a kind of mythological language. You know. But it's also talking about our experience, you know, this mind of ours. When, when the I am arises in our mind, if there's me, which is mine, then there's the other. There's that outside. And then there's, there's a sense of uh, me here, the world out there, and then there's a sense of threat. And how do we fend off that feeling of threat or danger or insecurity? Is we get stuff. We, we, we desire, uh, the mind goes to desire to protect ourselves or to get things or to be someone or to, to have. And so then the whole cycle begins. So that if, uh, if we follow the Buddha's advice and we reflect, yeah, this is the way nature works. I'm of the nature to age, nature to sicken, to die. 
all that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise, will become separated from me. Uh, I'm the owner of my karma and so forth. Then the, the attitude changes in a radical way. Rather than it being experienced that something that was mine is being lost, it's recognized that there wasn't anybody here to own anything in the first place. How could anything really be owned? It's like, how can you own a cloud or a tree yeah. or the, the moon? It's like, it's ridiculous. It's like, the moon is mine. What? <laughs> yeah. yeah, sometimes people have done that kind of thing, like when uh, um, I think the story goes that when Cortez, the, the Spanish explorer, got to the Pacific Ocean, he sort of stood on the shore and said, I claim this, I claim this sea for Spain. Yeah, so, you know, this little, little human being standing on a beach saying, I claim the Pacific Ocean, this is mine. It's, it, it's, pretty, it's particularly ridiculous. <laughs> this one little human being says, I am now the owner of the whole Pacific Ocean that covers a quarter of the surface of the planet. This is mine. Or this just belongs to my country. You can state that, but it's, it's also somewhat ridiculous. So when we, we change that, that point of view, then the, it is a desert, like the desert of the real. It's a challenge. I'm of the nature to age, I'm of the nature to sicken. So it threatens the habits of self-view. But it's important to notice that the point of that reflection is that freedom of the heart that comes by, of course, how could it be otherwise? Duh. That's how, that's how nature operates. How could something be born that doesn't die? How can something begin and not end? It, it can't be. That's not the way nature works. And so that uh, attunement to reality brings with it enormous relief. And so that the, that the fear that is there in our little pod of, of self-view disappears. That there's a, there isn't that sense of, of needing to, to collect and protect and to, to own and the feeling of threat, but rather there's a, an openness, there, there's an, an ease within us. Now, also another of the sayings is, um, I think it was uh, Suzuki Roshi, who was a Zen teacher living in the, in the uh, States, uh, was a, founded the um, San Francisco Zen Center, uh, talking about this kind of area, he says, uh, be very careful before you get on this train because it doesn't stop. So once you're out of your little pod, you can't go back in. You might try. And I think may, probably many of us have, having had those kind of moments of, of realizing, this is all a bit pointless, really. You know, just this sort of status and career and and trying to be um, you know, totally competent all of the time. It's all a bit silly. I mean, and <clears throat> but uh, once we've seen it, it's like learning to ride a bicycle. You can't really unsee it. You, know, you can't unlearn how to ride a bicycle. <laughs> once you've learned, it's there in the system. So that once you've seen that, even if we might try to avoid that, then it's there within us. We, and we might try to bury ourselves in, in getting busy on being... Um, so absorbed in, in worldly activity, but something in us is saying, you know, this is all a waste of time. <laughs> really. And so, uh, again, I'm not reading anybody's mind or I haven't been reading anybody's emails, or diaries or anything. 
But that that uh, there is something in us the self habits of self view that say, "Oh, shut up! Don't say that." You know, I'm 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 busy here. <laughs> but uh, it's uh, it's in a way important to recognize that and to have compassion for that in us, which sort of wants to hide away, wants to sort of get back into the into the pod. <laughs> I was looking for the blue pill again to to go back to sleep. Uh, but uh, we you know, prefer the delusion. Like uh, uh, this morning, I was recollecting in because uh, I, I lived in California for a long time, and uh, they like to have bumper stickers there, little stickers they put on the back of the car. And when, a popular one in the in the San Francisco area was, "I've given up my search for truth, and am now looking for a good fantasy." Which is a joke, but not a joke. <laughs> that uh, something in us does want to switch off, and I wish I could just not feel. I wish I could just just check out, and just if I can just forget. And part of us would like to, but uh, like Suzuki Roshi said, once you get on this train, he would say, I think long and hard before you get on this train because you won't be able to get off. <laughs> so once you've taken the red pill, you can't untake it. You know, you, um, but then uh, I think we can recognize those feelings of regret or the urge to switch off, but also to recognize, well, yeah, Part of me is regretting that, and part of me would like to go back to sleep. Like when you've woken up and you, you're having a really good dream, and you're kind of you're kind of awake, but you're kind of the, the dream hasn't quite finished yet. And the part of you is, oh, I was enjoying that. If I could just sort of doze off again and go back to that dream, yeah. Probably a few of us have had that experience. I, I certainly have. Oh, I was enjoying that. <laughs> can I can I just go back and have a little bit more of that? Just just a little bit more. Just teensy bit more of that but uh, uh, it's important to listen to that to respect that but also to recognize that's not what you want to put uh, in charge of your life that we we can do better than that and uh, and to to be able to recognize yeah that what was that all about why was I getting so upset about that or so excited about that why why did I make such a big thing that for myself like I was very impressed, and my my father was very old, and uh, he uh, he and my mother were were dog breeders. That's how they met, they were bull terrier breeders. And so my father eventually he was, they were farmers when when uh, I uh, uh, I was my myself and my sisters were born, and they had um, they had a long lifelong interest in dogs. And then my father eventually had a career um, writing in a dog magazine and judging dog shows around the world and. And he became a big figure. He was known as the Pope of Bull Terriers. <laughs> really, I'm not kidding you. He was a he was a seriously big figure in the world of dog breeding. Yeah, and uh, yeah, yeah, the, <clears throat> and so he was quite pleased with that. Yeah, he he was his calendar would be filled to, you know, two or three three or four years in advance. All dog shows he was invited to judge all around the planet, and uh, he was uh, treated with great respect in that field. But I was really amazed and impressed um, because they, he was uh, one of the um, board members of the Kennel Club, which is at the main dog breeding organization for this country. But uh, you have to retire from the board when you're 75. So that when he, he turned 75 and he stepped down from the board, then he said, everyone assumed that I'm no longer judging, I'm no longer writing, I'm no longer in the field. So I stopped getting all the invitations, I stopped getting all of the kind of contact. It all just sort of fell away. And so he had this period of between his, when he was 75 and when he was 80 
when he wasn't being called upon to, to travel around the world or, or be that figure anymore. And, uh, <clears throat> and I remember you know, uh, at that time, the, the, la- the sort of denouement of his life was judging the best in show at Crufts, which in the dog breeding world, in, dog, in the dog showing world, that's like arahantship. <laughs> that's the sort of the consummation of human potential is to, be, to judge the best in show at Crufts dog show. I'm not boasting. It's just, that's just a, within the dog world. That's a, the that's the thing. Uh, but running up to that, he made this really wonderful comment one day. He said, uh, "He said, I'm a big fish, but it's really a very small pond." I thought, "Wow, good for you, Dad," because <laughs> ten years before, there's no way he could ever have said that. But as his life was was uh, coming to an end, and also so many of his friends were sort of dropping dead around him from you know cirrhosis of the liver, <laughs> you know, uh, kidney disease, heart failure, lung uh, uh, lung cancer, and so on. Yeah, so many of his contemporaries were sort of dropping like flies around him. So the the heavenly messengers were really reaching him, and the and no uh, and since the system wasn't really drawing him into that world in such a strong way. Uh, he had a, uh, naturally got a bit of perspective, and and, and the wisdom of his years uh, really uh, bore fruit. And he, and uh, I was really impressed that uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a big fish, but it's a very small pond. And so that uh, it was uh, his uh, his last couple of years were very very peaceful, very gracious in many ways. And that he wasn't sort of hanging on, trying to be still the, the Pope of Bull Terriers for you know till his last breath. He was he was happy to. That that all okay? Well, it's just, and even one day he said, "It's only dogs, <laughs> really." And I think I, I forget who else in the family was in the room, but I think there was a collective turning of heads. Like, <laughs> Dad just said, "What? It's only dogs." So you know, it's like us lot saying, "It's only Buddhism." I mean. So it was really wonderful to see that kind of perspective that uh, sense of of letting go now ha- having said all of that uh it's it's uh and the 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 importance of waking up taking the red pill and not being afraid of the of the desert experience it's important to recognize that it's a that when you're ready to to go into the desert that you that the point is that you it's not just the desert experience but that uh, if one passes through that if you let yourself feel that sense of of loss or challenge to the self view then on the other side of that as i said that it's those kind of reflections are challenging to the ego but they're really freeing to the heart so the the point is that sense of ah, the sense of relaxation and ease the sort of safety on the other side of the desert the the security that one experiences on the on the other side of the desert and that also, I was reminded, uh, thinking of these themes, how Lumpur Sumedho often used to quote from um, the Hermann Hesse novel, The Journey to the East, where the, 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 uh, the main protagonist of the story sets off with this group of people on the, on the, uh, the sort of spiritual journey to, the, to Asia, to the East. And they all go out uh, in this um, pilgrimage together. And they're crossing this desert called Morbio Inferiore, which means the, the Valley of Despair. And uh, and while they're crossing the 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 desert, the Morbio Inferiore, the uh, 
uh, and this is, many of you will be familiar with Lumpur Sumedho talking on this theme, that this the person who's you know, telling the story uh, loses heart and he convinces himself these people are deluded, they don't know what they're doing, we're all going to die, that this is, this is all a stupid idea. Um, yeah, it's much better for, for me to go back to, to Europe, go back, go back home. So he turns around and, um, and thinks that the, he's left the fools behind in the desert and returns to his life and carries on with his world. So then, again, not wishing to spoil the story, but I will. <laughs> so 30 or 40 years later, he comes across, um, by chance, the person who led, was leading the pilgrimage. He says, oh, it's you. Oh, I, um, I last saw you in the desert 30, 40 years ago. I thought you were all lost and that you were wasting your time. And he said, no, no, it, says, it wasn't us who were wasting our time. We were making the journey. It was you who turned back. Yes, you're, you're the one who, uh, who uh, um, got lost in the desert. Yeah, we were, we were fine. Yeah, you, you decided to believe your own um, self-centered uh, perspective and, and you turned back. So... It was it was you that, that that lost out. You know, we we made it through to to the east and had our our, uh, our kind of spiritual fulfillment. So again, I was, it's, a, it's an interesting story, like the Matrix. I would recommend. It's got a lot of dharmic potential. The journey Herman Hesse's the journey to the east also has a lot of good themes in it, and and so that um, that when we are um, say ready to meet that desert experience and pass through it, then if we have the, the faith, the commitment, and also the kalyanamitta, if we are ready to be supported by our, our good spiritual friends, then at the other side of the desert, we will find that quality of fulfillment and refreshment and, uh, and uh, true contentment, true ease, the, the happiness of not wanting anything, the happiness of not, not craving, the, the happiness of the heart, that is independent uh, of all circumstance. So that uh, I would encourage us not to lose hearts as we meet those desert experiences, the, the uh, <clears throat> being abandoned by your loved ones, you know, more aching joints than you realized you had in the body, <laughs> more wrinkles than you thought were possible, more need you know, to dye your hair, you know, a couple of times a week, instead of just once a month. You know. Again, I'm not keeping track of anybody's... Uh, <laughs> I don't have cameras in your bathroom cupboards or anything. But, uh, just statistics, you know. But, uh, this is the way we operate. Just to, uh, to um, not lose heart, but to, uh, to say, uh, take the courage and uh, to draw upon the support, offer support to our, our Kalyanamita. And then on the other side of the desert, we find that uh, that quality of of uh, freedom, contentment, and fulfillment that that is our potential. So I'll finish my reflections there, and we'll have a time for speaking of refreshment and contentment. Tea, uh, some tea now, and then we'll reconvene at twenty past for some dialogue and questions.